I'm Paul Heron, and this is Episode 7 of the Anna Eastin Podcast, brought to you by Sky Blue Press, publisher of Mirages, the unexpurgated diary of Anna Eastin, and a cafe in space. Today we're going to talk about Anna Eastin, Henry Miller, and that third party, money. Most of us who study Anna Eastin know that her true erotic and literary life began shortly after meeting the American novelist Henry Miller in France in 1931. Miller, a fiery writer of multiple books banned in the English-speaking world and an avid lover, helped the young and inexperienced Neen find herself as a writer and as a woman. Not only did he introduce her to the raw side of Paris, but also to his sultry wife, June, with whom Neen had an unrealized erotic obsession, and Miller's gaggle of friends, including Alfred Perlis, his companion and roommate known alternately as Fred and Joey. Fred had eyes for Anais, but she loathed him, calling him a minor Henry, a would-be artist of no real worth. Miller, who was destitute, relied on friends and odd jobs for sustenance. Recognizing Miller's literary potential, Neen began to support him financially so he could concentrate on writing. She, with her husband's money, financed the publication of his first book, Tropic of Cancer, and wrote the preface. It should be noted that Neen went to extraordinary lengths to keep Hugh Geiler, her banker husband, unaware of her relationship with Miller. While she loved her husband, she needed the sort of passion he was incapable of giving her and would do anything to achieve it and to protect him from knowing about it. She went as far as writing a fake diary to fool him. This went on for ten years. In episode four of this podcast, we found out how Neen and Miller broke up. At the time, Miller was in California and Neen was in New York. The break occurred in a series of emotional, angry letters in which Neen famously said, I don't want you back, Henry marking the end of one of the century's most famous literary love affairs. But what happened during the years following the breakup? Was it truly over? Was there a complete break, or did some shred of the relationship survive? Dean ceased corresponding with Miller after the breakup and embarked on an erotic rampage with a vast assortment of men, all documented in the most recent unexpurgated diary, Mirages. In 1947, at the height of this odyssey, she met the man who would forever change her life, especially the intimate one, Rupert Pohl, a failed actor who became her lover on their first date and invited her to travel to Los Angeles with him, where he would study forestry. She had been amazed at the intensity of their lovemaking and felt that Rupert was the man she'd been seeking for years. She accepted his invitation. She duped her husband into believing she was traveling with a female friend and thus began her trapeze life between a husband in New York and a lover in California. Because Geiler was making good money at the time, Neen could afford to maintain a double life, which required plane trips across the continent several times a year and plenty of excuses. At the same time, Miller was living a Spartan life with his third wife, Lepska, and their two young children atop a mountain in Big Sur. Since his books were banned in America, he was basically poor, supporting himself with letters begging for monetary donations, writing non-sexual books that sold poorly, and by selling his watercolors. 
Nain wrote to him, announcing her trip west, and he invited her to pay him a visit. She wrote of the rendezvous in the Diary of Ani Isnin, Volume 4. The drive south along the coast from Monterey to Henry Miller's home in Big Sur was steep and dangerous, mountain driving. The car drove right into a courtyard, and there was Henry, sitting out of doors, typing. He seemed healthier than in New York. He was proud to own the modest cottage we entered. It was simple and uncluttered. I noticed the full bookcases and recognized the old Henry's tidiness. But when Neen met Miller's wife, Lepska, she noticed a strain between the couple. It was obvious Miller was not in love with his wife, and he belittled and criticized her in Neen's presence. Miller felt Neen's trip west was an escape from the loathsome New York, similar to his own, and he offered to help her in some way. Neen says in the diary, I made it clear I needed no help. It then occurred to her that she no longer knew this man named Henry Miller. She continues in the diary. I should not have visited Miller. As soon as one ceases to know a person intimately, the knowledge of them is from the outside, as if you stood from the outside at a window looking in. Knowing is intimacy. Intimacy takes trust and faith. That was over. They continued to correspond during the years after this meeting, but the letters were nothing like the sexually and emotionally charged love letters of the 30s. They were now impersonal and banal. During the early 1950s, Neen maintained her trapeze life, which was a monumental feat to say the least. Geiler quit his bank job and became a noteworthy experimental filmmaker and lived on his investments. Paul was now a forest ranger living in Sierra Madre, an hour or so outside Los Angeles. Paul, believing Neen had divorced Geiler, began to pressure her to marry him, not just for the sake of convention, but also because he truly loved her enough to make the commitment. In early 1955, after much resistance, Neen finally gave in, making her a bigamist, since she had not divorced Geiler, nor did she intend to. Shortly after the marriage, Reginald Pohl, Rupert's father, drove to Big Sur and visited Miller, telling him he was Dean's father-in-law, that she had married Rupert and divorced Geiler. A few weeks later, Miller's old pal, Alfred Perlis, wrote to Neen from Big Sur, where he was staying with Miller. Perlis finished his rambling, chatty letter with the following sentence. My own book on Henry Miller is coming out this autumn and you are affectionately evoked in it. One must understand that Neen was fearful that any mention of her relationship with Miller would most likely alert Geiler that she had been unfaithful for more than a decade, and even the hint of such revelations were met with unbridled fury. She began a series of letters to Perlis, to Miller, and to the publishers of the book, which would be entitled My Friend Henry Miller, demanding any mention of her be stricken completely. Miller played referee, trying to calm Dean down and to plead with Fred and his publisher to consider Dean's argument. Since the book was supposedly a biography of Miller, Perlis and his publisher strongly refused any such changes. Undeterred, Dean wrote to the publisher, Neville Armstrong, and said, I am writing to you as one human being to another. Your use of my name will damage a lifelong marriage. My name in that book is totally unnecessary. 
I am not publicity material. I am not a person who appeals to scandal lovers. When my diary comes out, it'll make your life of Miller an absurdity. After months of going around in circles and Neen's hysteria growing, Perlis and Armstrong finally compromised. They changed Neen's name in the book to Leon de Champour. Neen, of course, was not satisfied and felt that anyone remotely familiar with Miller would know who Leon really was. After this incident, Neen never forgave Perlis and blamed Miller for allowing him to write about her. So, not only was there emotional detachment from Miller, now there was a sense of utter betrayal and callousness. But there was a misunderstanding that no one seemed to acknowledge. Miller thought Neen and Geiler had divorced and was utterly confused by her complaints. When he questioned her, she said she was still married to Geiler and that she told Reginald Pohl that she was married to Rupert to keep the peace. This, of course, was only half true. As the 50s morphed into the 60s, Geiler, who had returned to banking, was making good money, but Neen's writing was not selling. She added nothing to the household income and was completely dependent on Geiler, not only for her double life, but for her frequent trips to Europe, which she used to entice foreign publishers. In the meantime, Miller was engaged in the famous obscenity trials, the results of which would finally unban his most notorious Paris books, including Tropic of Cancer and Black Spring, not to mention several other titles. When the trials were over and Miller was victorious, he received a $50,000 advance on royalties from his publisher. At age 70, for the first time, Henry Miller had money. While Miller's fortunes were rising, Neen's were precarious. Despite the fact she was writing again and had procured an American publisher for all her titles, her sales were slow. Then, Wall Street jitters and betrayal by business partners suddenly put Geiler's career into a tailspin. His salary tanked and his capital was almost completely depleted. These events had disastrous effects. Geiler could no longer afford to make films, had no expense account, which meant Neen could no longer visit European publishers, and her life with Paul was in jeopardy. Neen wrote to Geiler, expressing her determination to help out by taking on a teaching job at Los Angeles State College, which she actually did in 1962. It paid poorly, however, and the couple was on the verge of financial collapse. In light of Miller's sudden fame and fortune, Neen's bitterness had only deepened. In a 1962 letter to George Dibbern, she says, I was for ten years Henry's mistress and muse and protector, devoted to his work when he was poor and unsure of himself. I was sensitive, but I plunged into experience fearlessly. Henry and Fred started a legend of lesbianism because as a young woman I was dazzled by Henry's wife, June, the one he caricatures so cruelly in his books. What estranged me from Henry was his lack of loyalty and generosity. He knows the only thing I ever asked of him was no publicity that could hurt my husband, the deepest love of my life. Henry allowed Fred Perlis to write a vulgar and distorted story of our relationship, completely false, and when I asked his help, he wrote that he could not understand my relationship with Rupert and Hugo. The unconventionality of my life had freed him and allowed him to work in Paris for ten years. He let me struggle unaided and unpublished. He refused to preface my work. 
He tells the publishers that only my diary is worthwhile, and I can't publish it, and they turn down my novels. He cannot give to me, not even a book. Writing on his long-delayed success, Miller was convinced to publish his 1930s letters to Neen, devoid, of course, of intimate details, and was given a handsome advance. Miller was overwhelmed by publicity and was fearful that his archive could be in danger, so he gave it to UCLA for safekeeping, including all the love letters between him and Neen. When Neen found out her most intimate letters were in the possession of a third party, she at first panicked and then lashed out at Miller, demanding that her letters be given back to her. Instead, Miller sent her a letter from UCLA stating that the only people permitted to see the Miller archive would be accredited scholars. This did not allay her fears. While Miller didn't return her letters, he did offer her a share of the advance on the book. This act would change the nature of their relationship. Neen notes in her unpublished 1962 diary, Over the years I accumulated many griefs against Henry. I stopped writing to him. When in need of money, I sold some of his letters to me. More than the thoughtless acts he had committed, I hated my own anger. I wanted to be free of it. So when he wrote offering me the royalties on the publication of his letters to me, I answered it was not money I wanted, but his help in obtaining my letters back from UCLA. His answer was like Henry, no empathy or sympathy for my motivation, but offering help. So I let him help me in the way he wanted to, financially. He sent me $2,500 at a most critical moment and relieved me of economic anxiety. Miller had no way of knowing that this money came at exactly the right time for Neen, that not only was she able to help Hugo with his films, but was also able to maintain her California life with Pole. Neen writes in her diary, To thank Henry, I visited him in Pacific Palisades, where he now lives. Unconsciously, there were other reasons. I had heard he was not well, and I wanted to recover the genuine goodness of the relationship. I couldn't bear hostility. I let Rupert drive me to a typical, ordinary little California house, cream-colored with neat lawns. When Henry opened the door, there was the negroid warmth of his voice, but the shock of his aging. It was no longer the pink-skinned, clean, clear face. He was not fat, but there was a slight tremor and the slackness of seventy. The eyelid falling over the right eye slightly, giving to his left eye more fixity by contrast. This eye gave me a strange uneasiness. It was an indication of my own aging, because this time, even while softened by the voice and the acute mentality and the past, I saw the slyness, the deep lack of feeling I had not observed before. This dual vision was that of the dead romantic Anais. But I felt grieved about his aging. He talked about his children. They came in. They looked like a million other Californian teenagers. I could not have distinguished them or said, These are Henry Miller's children. Henry said, Success. Oh, success on the East. It doesn't mean anything. The only thing which means anything are the few letters one gets a year. Personal responses. He was unchanged, modest, unaffected, naive at this moment. No ego showing. The Henry who wants to be thought a saint. 
He asked, What about you? Are you or are you not married to Rupert? Are you a bigamist? I said, No, I'm not. I just say we're married because of his family. Henry said, In Germany, I wrote a play. And what do you think? The French found it too sentimental. They thought Henry is getting old. He, the ruthless one, is becoming soft. And I thought to myself, Soft. He was always soft, gentle. And so one believed he was compassionate. But he does not believe in protection. I told him how Hugo had suddenly lost his commissions and job during the Wall Street turbulence and how his gift relieved me as I was starting teaching to supplement his shrunken salary. No more trips to Europe for me. The light made his eyes twitch, the weak eyes of the Paris days. The mouth no longer fresh and sensual. It hurt me to see Henry old because he was a symbol of life, of pleasure. I felt tenderness, forgiveness. He suggested I steal my letters from the UCLA library. He said he was not done with writing, but that the world didn't give him time now. Success has not spoiled him, but it's given him a load to carry. Letters to answer, obligations, young writers ask for help. But I don't think he's a lonely man. His relationship to the world is more important than his personal relationships. He can easily transfer his love here and there. I've never been worried about Henry being lonely. To be lonely, you have to love the other person as a part of yourself you cannot live without. That has never been Henry's feeling about anyone except his children. Women were necessary to him, but he would never die of a broken heart. A new relationship between Anna Eastneen and Henry Miller emerged. A business one. The sort they both despised. But Neen was in no position to rebel. She was still surrounded by the darkness that precedes sudden fame. To find out more about the topics presented here, read Mirages and Volume 12 of The Cafe in Space, both found on iTunes, Amazon, and www.skybluepress.org. This has been the On the East Neen Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.